It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 3000 BCE, a 12-year-old boy ran through a field on the Iberian Peninsula in modern-day Spain. Because he lived in an era before the written word, no record survives of his name. But in this episode, we'll call him Corbis. The sun was warm and the air smelled sweet. But Corbis wasn't satisfied to simply lie in the grass and stare at passing clouds. He'd heard a rumor that strangers had arrived in their village, foreigners with mysterious tools and seemingly magic powers. Watching from the top of a hill, Corbis saw the strange men sitting atop monstrous beasts. Corbis had never seen animals like them before, but they were huge and frightening, even at a distance. But the foreign traders atop them were even more mysterious. One outsider tossed a handful of grains into a fire pit. He gestured at the smoke that poured from the flames. Something important was happening. But the village leaders didn't seem to like the smoke. Corbis was too far away to make out specific words, but he saw his elders shake their heads and turn away. They weren't interested in buying what these traders were selling. This wasn't the answer the traders wanted to hear. One of them drew an inexplicable device from his coat. It was long and shiny, glinting in the sun. To Corbus's horror, the trader easily plunged it into an elder's belly. Corbus didn't understand what was going on, but today archaeologists can piece together ancient stories from the artifacts. Around 3000 BCE, the native people of the Iberian Peninsula were wiped out by foreign traders. The immigrants, called the Yamnaya, brought horses and bronze weapons, the likes of which had never been seen before in Europe. But they weren't ordinary arms dealers. The Yamnaya were the world's first kingpins, reshaping human history as they pioneered the sale of weapons and cannabis. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we're taking a special one-episode look at an ancient culture known as the Yamnaya. 
Around 3000 BCE, their trade routes exploded across Asia and Europe, and their commodities shaped the cultures of the people who bought and sold with them. In short, you might not even be here today listening to this podcast, if not for the ancient trade of cannabis. The Yamnaya people were arguably the first drug dealers, and maybe the first kingpins. Except for one small quibble. The Yamnaya didn't break any laws. In fact, they predated the first written regulations, Hammurabi's Code, by about 1,300 years. That makes their empire different from the others covered on this show. They never had to dodge the cops or bribe officials to do business. In fact, they probably weren't even breaking any societal taboos. So far as the Yamnaya were concerned, they weren't doing anything wrong when they sold cannabis. And yet, they shared a lot of features with more traditional kingpins. Like later cartel leaders, they dominated trade routes across two continents. And when they weren't making profits, they used brutal violence to get ahead. The Yamnaya sold a lot of products, but their empire was built on one particular plant that countless drug dealers have grown and sold – cannabis. But to understand how the first weed market developed, we need to go back even further into prehistory and explore the relationship between the earliest humans and pot. Historians aren't entirely sure where cannabis originated from. But by about 3000 BCE, it was everywhere. It's generally accepted that marijuana evolved somewhere around Eastern Europe or Asia. Researcher E. Anderson called wild cannabis a camp follower. It thrived near human settlements, which tended to be close to fresh water and had rich soil that was often fertilized by human waste. Wild marijuana plants tended to pop up along well-traveled routes, until eventually nomadic tribes noticed that the plants were useful. They'd gather the leaves and stems, dropping seeds along the way that would later blossom into new plants. That meant they always had a steady supply of cannabis, which could be fashioned into cloth and rope. Records suggest that as early as 10,000 BCE, ancient Middle Eastern and Asian people were weaving and braiding with hemp, the fibers made from cannabis stalks. It was so useful that around 6500 BCE, the ancient Chinese people began intentionally planting pot and harvesting it. Many researchers, including environmental scientist Ernest Small, believed that cannabis was one of the first crops that human beings ever domesticated. And that domestication fundamentally changed cannabis's evolution. See, Ancient oral tradition implied that Stone Age Chinese people ate cannabis seeds. The wild cultivars contained very low levels of THC, so they could eat it without getting high. Those early nomads probably didn't see cannabis any differently from ordinary wild wheat or rice. But at some point, cultivated weed became more potent than wild varieties. Chemical residue dated to around 2000 or 1500 BCE shows the existence of unnaturally THC-rich charred cannabis seeds. So someone, somewhere, figured out how to breed the good stuff. We don't know exactly when hallucinogenic pot first appeared, but it might have been much earlier, closer to 3000 BCE. 
It's unclear whether Stone Age people selectively bred plants to create high concentrations of THC or if they found a naturally strong mutant strain and gathered those seeds. Regardless, what followed was a tale as old as time. Literally. The early people of Eurasia had a product. The world wanted it. They just needed to find a way to turn a profit. And the Yamnaya capitalized on the opportunity. Like many other kingpins, the first weed dealers had humble beginnings. They were figuring out all the rules of the drug trade themselves. Paper money and coins hadn't even been invented yet. Theirs wasn't a simple case of opening a dispensary or pushing from a street corner. Instead, they built an empire on a barter economy, selling weed in exchange for livestock, food, or valuable metals. These Yamnaya weren't a single tribe or a single ethnicity. They were what archaeologist Nikolai Murpert described as a cultural historical community. This concept of cultural historical communities is a bit complicated, but you might see similar themes among, say, juggalos. Fans of the insane clown posse come from all over the world and all walks of life. Each individual has an entirely different background, but they all listen to the same kind of music, use the same kinds of slang, and paint their faces the same way. Occasionally, juggalos all gather together for concerts or rallies. And when they're united, their similarities are clear. Even though each music fan might have a different race, ethnicity, family history, hometown or state, or economic background, their commonalities are more important than their differences. For the Amnaya, one such commonality was their home region. The culture first appeared in the steppes of the Caucasus Mountains in Ukraine and Russia. Incidentally, this is roughly the region that cannabis is allegedly from. Perhaps the Yamnaya were among the first pot growers. They were always nomads, but they limited their travels to a territory near that of another tribe, the Botai. In roughly 3700 BCE, the plains were temperate and the growing seasons were regular. It was a paradise with few predators. Naturally, when the people were well-fed, safe and secure, they started families. Over the course of a few hundred years, the Botai and Yamnaya populations exploded. But despite being neighbors, the Yamnaya and Botai were anything but friends. Worse yet, since both groups began to develop similar technologies at the exact same time, an arms race between the two sparked. Bronze was likely first discovered in the region between 3700 and 3500 BCE. This metal could be used to make sharper blades, which may have aided in hunting. Bronze knives were certainly effective weapons, useful if a Botai raiding party attacked a Yamnaya settlement or vice versa. And these sorts of squabbles were probably increasingly frequent. As the Botai and Yamnaya tribes grew, food became scarce. The local prey animals were being hunted to extinction. So around 3700 BCE, the Yamnaya and Botai each independently tamed the world's first domesticated horses. The mounts helped them ride further and track herds across larger territories. But this development only delayed the inevitable for so long. Even with the horses, the Botai and the Yamnaya couldn't coexist forever. As food grew ever scarcer, the cultures went to war. 
a war that the Botai won. Which left the defeated Yamnaya with no choice but to flee their homeland in the Caucasus Mountains around 3000 BCE. This narrative is highly hypothetical. There's no written record of the alleged conflicts between the Yamnaya and the Botai. Instead, anthropologists have hypothesized that it happened based on the limited archaeological records. But the war, if it did exist, changed the Yamnaya culture utterly. The people could no longer be peaceful hunter-gatherers. They couldn't survive if they let other cultures push them around anymore. They needed to toughen up. As the Yamnaya migrated away from the Caucasus region, they utilized new technologies to maintain their hold on the markets. Evidence suggests that they pioneered the use of wagons for long-distance travel, making it possible to carry valuable goods in larger quantities. And when they arrived in Eastern Asia and Northern Europe around 3000 BCE, they introduced their trading partners to products they'd never seen before. Things like bronze tools and cannabis, which researcher Andrew G. Sherratt described as a cash crop before cash. Archaeologists have very limited evidence from 5,000 years ago. But it seems that the Yamnaya were able to establish trade relations fairly quickly. Perhaps they'd learned a lesson from their painful loss at the hands of the Botai. Power is survival. But the Yamnaya did more than survive. They thrived. In fact, in his book, Horse, Wheel, and Language, anthropologist David W. Anthony argued that they single-handedly revolutionized trade as a concept. For example, at their height, the traders traveled along a route known as the Hoshi Corridor. This path connected China with Central Asia. Artifacts found along the way included non-native metals and plants like wheat and cannabis, clearly carried by Yamnaya or other early traders. 3,000 years later, the Silk Road was established on the same route. Thus, this ancient highway connects the prehistoric world to modern civilization as much as it bridges distant communities. But the Hoshi Corridor wasn't their only innovation. Thanks to their use of tamed horses and wagons, the Yamnaya operated the first big cartels. They crushed smaller operations, those from other communities or fellow Yamnayans alike. From there, they developed a wealth-based class system, one with its own strictly enforced norms and etiquettes, unwritten rules that could bind as tightly as formal laws later would. While the Yamnaya may have lived before recognizable money, they managed to create one of the world's first capitalist-like economies. Instead of coin, they became rich through barter, accumulating livestock, jewels, and spices. And they did so without leaving any written record of what happened to them. But we can speculate on the Yamnayans' influence based on the way they changed the world around them. Signs of the ancient drug trade persist to this day in the world's major languages, religions, and even in our DNA. Up next, the Yamnaya reshape the world and become one of the deadliest groups in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Roughly 5,000 years ago, in 3000 BCE, the Yamnaya people of Eastern Europe became history's first transcontinental traders and the first drug dealers. After being driven from their homeland in the Caucasus Mountains, they reinvented themselves as savvy and sometimes violent traders. It didn't hurt that their products practically sold themselves. Based on artifacts found along their trading routes, researchers believe traders like the Amnaya were instrumental in distributing cannabis and bronze across Europe and Asia. Their customers, in turn, found new, creative ways to use the drug. They made it possible for Emperor Shen Neng, the father of Chinese medicine, to pioneer the use of medical marijuana. He ruled in about 2700 BCE. According to accounts, Shen Neng was a kind and empathetic ruler. He cared deeply for his people, especially those who suffered and died due to illness. In an era before germ theory or a theory of genetics, he wanted to understand how the human body worked. And because he couldn't bear to make another person sick, he experimented on himself. He intentionally took various poisons and antidotes and documented his symptoms and reactions. He hoped to unlock the secret uses of many herbs and plants, including ma or cannabis. Thanks to Shen Neng's findings, ancient Chinese people used marijuana to treat PMS, malaria, constipation, and even forgetfulness, all of which was possible because the Amnaya were keeping him supplied with weed. But cannabis wasn't their only highly sought-after product. Bronze, in particular, was a big deal in 3000 BCE. There's a reason we call it the start of the Bronze Age. Stone knives have been around for thousands of years, but bronze blades could be made sharper and longer. This made it possible for people to create never-before-seen weapons, like daggers and swords. You may have heard about how Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar destabilized his nation's government for profit, or how cartel-driven violence devastated Mexico in the early 2000s. But 5,000 years before any modern kingpins lived, the Yamnaya flooded Eastern Asia with weapons that shaped the course of Chinese history forever. Suddenly, the weak and the powerless could carry daggers and swords, becoming powerful warlords. In addition, archers made bowstrings out of hemp fibers, hemp that had come directly from the Yamnaya. With new weapons and new ways to kill people from afar, the balance of power shifted in Eastern Asia. In fact, researcher Xie Yi credits the influx of Yamnaya bronze with a period of political instability in the Yellow River region of China. Fighting raged until 2100 BCE when the Xia dynasty, the first formal government in the country, was established. China's dynastic era continued in fits and starts up until 1912 CE, meaning that 4,000 years of history stemmed directly from Yamnayan influence. Not bad for a group of first-time drug dealers on the run. Granted, there's a lot of supposition and reading between the lines in that narrative, 
and it's fair to assume that the Yamnaya couldn't have predicted the fallout of their bronze trade. Like many later kingpins, they were just interested in selling product and gaining power, at least while they were in Asia. But when it comes to the European trade, the Yamnaya disrupted culture and political stability intentionally. Because when they didn't close the deals they wanted, they responded with brutal bloodshed. In true kingpin fashion, they swept into the new territory with product in one hand and a weapon in the other. Their partners could choose, buy or die. In southern and central Europe, the threats were unnecessary. The Yamnaya established good trade relationships and made themselves wealthy. Just like in Eastern Asia, evidence suggests that the Yamnaya distributed cannabis through modern-day India and Iran. But they didn't stay for long. Although they introduced weed culture, the Yamnaya left little other mark before moving on to new routes. But for some reason, in Western Europe, especially in Spain and England, they left a trail of bodies in their wake. Blogger Colin Barras even mused that the European Yamnaya may have been the most murderous people in history. It's hard to determine the details without a written record. But we do know the earliest Yamnaya traders settled throughout Europe between 3000 and 2000 BCE. Right around their earliest arrival, the ancient Britons, the people who built Stonehenge, disappeared almost entirely from the geological record. Although it's hard to say for sure, they presumably died by Yamnaya hands. But the Britons fared better than the prehistoric Spaniards. Harvard Medical School's David Reich argues that the original inhabitants of the Iberian Peninsula, or modern-day Spain, were wiped out entirely. There are no surviving records of how or why these people died. It probably didn't happen all at once, since genocide is bad for business relationships. All we know is how the clash of cultures ended. Utter Yamnaya domination. It's possible that the slaughter was an accident. The Yamnaya might have exposed Britons and Spaniards to unidentified diseases for which they had no immunity. Or there could have been a massive war. A war for which the Yamnaya were well-suited. With bronze blades and hemp bows and arrows, their weaponry was significantly further advanced than that of the other Europeans. However the conflict played out, the Yamnaya are estimated to have eliminated nearly all of the ancient Spanish and British men by about 2500 BCE. The women, on the other hand, lasted a little longer, though eventually they too disappeared. And we know that thanks to genetics. Harvard Medical School's David Reich and University of Copenhagen in Denmark's S.K. Villeslev compared the DNA of the Yamnaya and ancient Germans. They found that the Germans got three quarters of their inherited traits from the Yamnaya. In other words, the Yamnaya outbred the native Western Europeans until they replaced them. Bodies that old are hard to come by, but researchers believe something similar happened throughout all of Europe. Basically, ancient Spanish and Britain blood was watered down until only the Yamnaya remained. And Yamnaya DNA seems to have only been passed along patrilineal lines, meaning Yamnaya women weren't peacefully intermarrying with Nordic people. Only the men were reproducing with Western Europeans, which suggested their progeny were possibly the result of rape 
or forced marriage. Or maybe the Yamnaya men were able to attract women because they were wealthy, accomplished, and urbane. Perhaps rather than being conquerors and criminals, they were more like pickup artists who knew how to leverage their assets for sex. After all, some researchers believe that European Yamnaya were predominantly male. In fact, the traveling groups might have a male-to-female ratio close to 10 to 1. So around 3000 BCE, a group of single guys show up in a small European village. They're flush with signifiers of wealth like fancy jewelry and livestock. They can hook you up with pot, which helps the local women relax and unwind. They tell tales of travel through exotic lands. Naturally, they had no trouble getting laid. Surprisingly, some of those liaisons became serious. A few Yamnaya settled in new lands and raised families. They adopted the culture of their new neighbors with one major difference. A controversial linguistic theory suggests that the Yamnaya language became the dominant tongue in all of Europe. Now, the science gets a bit complicated. But in simple terms, a hypothetical Proto-Indo-European language, or PIE, serves as a basis for many other European, Middle Eastern, and Central Asian languages. In other words, English, Greek, Celtic, Turkish, Sanskrit, and hundreds of other languages may have come from the same mother tongue. A tongue that happened to sweep across the Yamnaya trade routes just as they began hawking their wares. So at their height, the Yamnaya were the predominant kingpins on two continents. They were some of the wealthiest and most dangerous people on earth. They reshaped the world in their image, spreading their DNA, their language, and their religion. According to linguist Jim Mallory, the Yamnayans worshipped a god called Skyfather. We don't know much about the Skyfather's personality or what he did. We don't know any stories or legends that feature him. All we know is his name. This may explain why fatherhood was important to the Yamnaya. Men were the heads of households. Their language suggested that bonds between fathers, sons, brothers, and other male relatives were incredibly important to Yamnaya societal structure. Wives, sisters, mothers, and daughters weren't taken seriously in general. When a trader died, they were interred with wheels and wagon carts. Wagons were crucial to the Yamnaya. In life, they carried people and product across continents, and afterward, they conveyed them to the world of the dead. Beyond that, our best guesses at Yamnaya religion come from observing other people. See, many communities in Asia and Northern Europe adopted very similar customs at roughly the same time, right after the arrival of the Yamnaya. So anthropologists have made some educated guesses based on these shared traits. Those commonalities appeared shortly after the Yamnaya traders' arrival and persisted after they died out. Just like linguists see Yamnayan influence in countless modern languages, theologians like J. Harold Ellens believe the foundation of every major world religion comes from Yamnayan belief. Which means that if you spend every Sunday morning in Mass, or every Friday night at the synagogue, or thank Brahman every sunrise, you might actually be following Yamnayan practices and the heart of your religion possibly stems from the cannabis trade. 
Next, history's earliest and most powerful and influential drug dealers disappear, but their culture lives on through the major world religions. Now back to the story. Around 3000 BCE, the ancient Yamnaya people left the area around Ukraine and Russia to trade cannabis and other goods in Europe and Asia. A thousand years later, they settled down and disappeared. For hundreds of years, Yamnaya traders enjoyed wealth, influence, and respect. But all along, many members of the group longed for the one thing they'd lost, humble, stable lives in a land they could call their own. And eventually, the fearsome people gave up their wagons and their wealth to intermarry with the people of Europe and Asia. Unlike most kingpins and cartels, they didn't meet a violent or sudden end. They just gave up the fast-paced life of drug dealing for a quiet life. But their weed-based practices lived on after them, so much so that the major world religions incorporated cannabis use. This is clear in ancient burial rituals. In 2003, a team of archaeologists unearthed a mummified Caucasian man in China, believed to be a Yamnaya shaman. He was buried in patterned brown pants, a mantle and a coat. He wore copper and gold earrings, a turquoise necklace, and had been interred near a large bag of marijuana leaves. Presumably, they were supposed to help him on his journey into the afterlife. We don't know if the weed helped him on his journey, but we know that Yamnayan trading partners borrowed their cannabis use in their own burials. For example, in Romania, unearthed tombs suggested that the people of the time buried clay pots filled with charred marijuana alongside their loved ones. Likewise, a 35-year-old man was uncovered by an archaeologist in China. In the first millennia BCE, the man was buried with 13 cannabis plants, each of which was about a yard tall. Around the same time in the Yanghai Cemetery in Xinjiang, China, a body was buried with two pounds of cannabis seeds and powdered leaves. That grave was strangely similar to a Siberian woman's. She also died before 1000 BCE and went to her death with weed paraphernalia. Gold vessels recovered from Scythian or ancient Siberian burial sites contain traces of opium and cannabis which archaeologists believe were used together and then buried with the bodies. It seems that ancient people believed pot could connect the worlds of the living and the dead. This fits with what ancient Greek historian Herodotus described in his reports on Scythian burial customs. He lived 1,500 years after the Yamnaya died out. But by his era, ceremonial weed use had permeated every European society. In ancient Siberia, the surviving ancient Scythians would bury the dead and then ritually purify themselves with cannabis smoke. Herodotus explained that they'd enter a small tent, similar to a teepee. Then they'd heat a pile of stones until they were red hot and toss cannabis seeds on the rocks. Mourners would sit and breathe deeply of the sacred herb. And with each inhalation, they'd feel lighter, happier, more carefree. With each exhalation, they release some of their grief and sadness. By the end of the funeral hotbox, the mourners had turned into partiers. As Herodotus explained, this practice gives the Scythians such satisfaction that they shout with joy. Weed was used for more than cheering up grieving people at funerals. 
In many cultures, shamans smoked it so they could communicate with loved ones who'd passed away. The Scythian shamans, called Enaries, had the power to bridge many worlds. Not only could they connect the living and the dead, they also occupied the gap between male and female. Enaries were often gender non-binary people. We know Enaries used cannabis in their rituals, but archaeologists haven't worked out many details about how. It's likely, though, that they borrowed traditions from the Thracians, a closely related ethnic group. In Thracian custom, shamans burned cannabis seeds like incense. They'd inhale the smoke to induce a trance. Then, they supposedly could travel to other worlds. Similarly, Chinese shamans used marijuana to blend spiritualism and medicine. They believed that illness was caused by evil spirits within the body. Shamans could get high and cast wicked entities out of the sick person. Eventually, the use of cannabis became more ritualized and formalized. Shamanistic spiritual practices evolved into recognizable world religions. For example, the Christian Bible contains several possible references to the drug. Exodus chapter 30 details instructions from God to Moses on how to make a sacred oil for ritual anointments. Among the ingredients, God tells Moses to use kane bosom. Kana is a Hebrew word for reed or stalk, while bosom roughly translates to aromatic. This phrase, aromatic reeds and stalks, has sometimes been translated as calamus, a marsh plant native to Central Asia and Europe. But some modern researchers suspect that kana bosom may actually be an ancient word for cannabis. This is in part because later Old Testament passages speak of making shirts from kana, possibly hemp shirts. Polish etymologist Sula Benet analyzed biblical texts and concluded that cannabis was frequently used in early Jewish religious practices. After Moses learned to make weed-based anointing oils, later priests may have burned marijuana along with incense during worship. But ancient Jewish people weren't just passing joints for the fun of it. Cannabis was considered holy and sacred, strictly to be used in religious practice. Casual smoking would have been highly taboo and likely forbidden. Likewise, in India, early Hindus associated cannabis with the worship of Shiva. So much so that some practitioners might have considered marijuana a necessary component of their religion. As the 1894 Indian Hemp Drugs Commission report explained, there is evidence to show that on almost all occasions of the worship of Shiva, hemp drugs in some form or another are used. These customs are so intimately connected with their worship that they may be considered to form in some sense an integral part of it. Traces of cannabis use for religious purposes can be found even further back in time during the first millennium BCE, when religious leader Zoroaster was said to use a narcotic called bong. Researchers like the University of London's professor of comparative religion, John Hinnells, understood bong to be cannabis. Like the early Jewish priests, Zoroastrians, who were located throughout Persia and parts of western India, considered bong too sacred and powerful for everyday use. They strictly controlled who would consume it and in which context. On rare but spiritually significant occasions, 
Zoroastrian holy people would drink a liquid containing bong and then go on a vision quest to the land of the dead. By the 6th century, ceremonial weed use was an integral part of Indian religious tradition. But that all changed when an Indian prince named Siddhartha allegedly achieved enlightenment, founding the Buddhist faith. Holy texts don't specify whether the Buddha ever used weed, but historians point to differing perspectives on hallucinogenic use among his early followers. Psychologist, theologian, and author J. Harold Ellens noted in his book Seeking the Sacred with Psychoactive Substances that some Buddhists historically used cannabis to attain spiritual ecstasy. But most early Buddhists were ascetics who saw drug use as an inhibitor to spiritual growth. It seems likely that Buddhism, in its earliest form, was countercultural in its rejection of the dominant weed culture, which taught that cannabis could connect a person to God. Buddhism aside, it's possible that many major world religions began with ceremonial pot use. Christianity and Islam are said by some to have drawn from weed-based traditions birthed in Zoroastrianism and Judaism. All of these belief systems shared the same early assumption, that cannabis could connect the living and the dead and allow mortals to encounter the divine. It was a philosophy that came from the same people who'd supplied the weed in the first place, the Yamnaya. Thanks to their immense influence over religious practice alone, it's no exaggeration to say that the Yamnaya changed the course of human history. And they continued to shape the world even long after they disappeared. If you're Chinese or Northern European, odds are you have some Yamnaya DNA. If you like to smoke pot or speak an Indo-European language or identify with a major religion, you practice some form of Yamnaya culture. But it's a culture that has been altered and adapted over the course of 5,000 years. For practical purposes, the Yamnaya are considered an extinct people. But it's hard to even imagine what the world might have looked like if not for them. Thanks to Yamnaya pot dealers, ancient people throughout Asia and Europe learned to ride horses. They shared a common language. They developed the earliest dynasties and capitalist systems today's major religions were born. So it's not too outlandish to say that without cannabis, the ancient world would have looked quite different. Perhaps early religious leaders like Zoroaster or Moses wouldn't have perceived a divine power or founded new movements. A world without weed might be a world without Judaism, Christianity, or Hinduism. Without the Hoshi Corridor, ancient people might not have exchanged bronze weapons. Perhaps the earliest Chinese dynasties would never have been founded, and the political history of East Asia would have gone down an entirely different route. And without trans-European trade, the power dynamics in the Western Hemisphere would have been fundamentally different as well. People like the Britons and ancient Spaniards might have survived and flourished. And from a genetic perspective, no Westerner would be here, if not for their Yamnaya ancestors. In short, an alternate Earth that lacked ancient cannabis trade would be unrecognizable. It would be filled with entirely different nations, different languages, different products, 
and possibly even different religions. In our world, every time a stoner passes a joint at a party, they're participating in a tradition that's at least 5,000 years old. One that's older than iron, democracy, or the mathematical concept of zero. Perhaps the hippies of the 1960s were right. Weed really does make the world go round. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Listener.